I appreciate Chris who just came up and turned the, turned the cross on. He said, I want there to be something bright on stage for the next half hour. So <laughs> thanks, Chris. I'm excited to be here. I, I, love, I love coming Sunday morning. As you know, I'm a, I'm a Saturday nighter, but uh, it's always a treat to come Sunday morning, and it's always a treat to get told by the coach you're in. He says, I know you're batting 110, but you're in. We got nobody else. So I'm, uh, I'm, honored. I'm honored for that. Um, I really just, as Mark's been preaching through this series, the I Am series, I just, something dawned on me a few weeks ago, and I said to Mark, I, I, I just want to, pre- I want to be part of your series. I want to do I want to do one of, your, one of your talks, and so I've named tonight's talk, uh, sorry, this morning's talk, I Am Your Guest Speaker, and so I'm excited to be here. Um, I'm, as much as I'm glad to be back, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what maybe made this happen. I like to think it was the petition that's been floating around. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but uh, just, just this idea that there was a lot of people who were kind of uh, looking to uh, sign that petition, uh, I can't. I can't actually, I, I can't say that. No one has signed it yet. Um, Candace was close. My wife was close to signing it yesterday, but then she said, oh, wait, what's wrong with Zach? And then she wouldn't sign it. So if you're interested in signing it, you can just go to my website. It's www.don'tterryjustbringbackgary, and you can, uh, you can sign up right on the spot. But there has, there's been a lot of Zach lately. Is Zach here? I know Zach's here. He won't put up his hand. Where is he? Oh, he's hiding. Okay. A lot, lot, of, lot of Zach lately, and I get that. And I, I can't really say that I will be better than Zach this morning, but I will be longer. And I think, I think that's really what you're looking for. So anyway, raise your hand if this is true for you. Have you ever tried to run away from home? That's a lot of enthusiasm. Oh, yeah. All right. And I, I mean when you're young. Somewhere between your diaper stage and your Dorito stage. Like somewhere in there, as a kid, you thought, things are better elsewhere. I'm going to run away from home. Well, here's the thing that I think is true for no matter what your age. If you decide to run away from home, it's really not about where you're going. It's about where you're leaving from. It's running away. It's not really running to. And I, I think that's true for all ages. And when you run away from home... Uh, you may not really think to yourself a lot about what the next step is. I, when I was a kid, I ran away from home, and I, I got to the end of the driveway, and I thought, well, well, now what? I'm not sure what my next step is. And so if you're going, that's why I think a lot of people run away to a bus station. And again, you may not know which particular bus is going where, but you're kind of guaranteed if you get on a bus, it's leaving. It's going to take you somewhere else. And so as I said, when I was 8, maybe 10, I ran away from home. And I ran away from home with my sisters, which didn't make a lot of sense because I thought that's why I was running away from home was because of my sisters. But we all decided to run away from home and they made it much further than I did. I made it, uh, I made it halfway up the block and I uh, kind of chickened out. And uh, I, I mean, I think it's because I realized that our plan was to live in a tree. Not, not in a tree house, just in a tree up behind the church up by our house. That's where we were running away to. And uh, I remember thinking maybe, maybe this is not the great plan that we had planned for weeks to do this. And uh, that's as far as I made it. You know, I wasn't really a, a deep thinker back then or as you're about to find out now. Um, but that, that was it. That was it. We planned it for weeks. We packed up snacks. We got stuff together. We had like a little playhouse in the backyard and it was, it was kind of our depot for storing all this stuff. And then on that fateful morning, we decided that's it. We're out of here. And my sisters bravely headed off, and I kind of lingered behind. And uh, um, as they say, you know, it's all about the away. 
It's not really about the two. And uh, in fact, we're going to talk about Jonah this morning. And uh, the real na- name of the, the message this morning is the unwilling messenger. And we're not going to really talk about Tarshish. And we're not going to really talk about where Jonah ran to because it has nothing to do with the story. It wasn't that there was something there that he wanted to get to. It, the point was that there was not here. And we know the story, and we know that Jonah would have been much better off just staying at home in his basement playing on his Xbox. And he certainly would have been better off than coming up with a plan that said, I'm going to head out open, over open water. But that's what he did. And so let me ask you to raise your hand again. Do you think you've ever tried to run away from God? Yeah, you're brave if you put up your hand. That's a weird one to answer in church. I'll, I'll let you just kind of do a small one if you'd like. But have you ever tried to run away from God? It doesn't make a lot of sense on the, on the surface, does it? But it's a little bit um, different than running away as a kid. You know, running away from God, unless you're Michael Scott and you're heading out of Scranton, I mean, you're not physically leaving when you're running away from God. It's more of an attitude change, isn't it? It's your way of, of, of basically, your, your way of running away from God is simply saying, I know better. I know, what God is, I know what God's will is in this situation, and I don't want it. I know what God's going to answer this. I know exactly what he's going to say, and I'm not going to like it. I know exactly what he's asking of me, and I'm just not willing to do it. And that's what from running from God is all about. It's not that you suddenly stop believing that there is a God, but you start to slowly change what you believe about God. So suddenly, he's not your personal God. He's not your loving father. He's not your personal savior. He isn't someone who loves and cares for you. He isn't someone who knows best what's best for you. He becomes this idea of someone who's just always kind of looking down and judging you. And so we start to adjudge, uh, sorry, we start to adjust or abandon our theology. And I learned this in my men's group this year. That's called apostasy. Apostasy is when you change what you believe because you don't like the tension that not doing what you're supposed to do brings about in you. It feels uncomfortable when you're not following God's will, so maybe God didn't say that. Maybe God doesn't mean that, and maybe God doesn't actually care if I do this. And so we change what we think, and we kind of put God on the back burner, kind of in the rearview mirror, just like you read. I always love that scene in Jurassic Park where the dinosaur is chasing the guy in the Jeep, and it shows a picture of his side view mirror. It says, objects may be closer than they appear, right? And it's kind of like that with God. Oh, so you're off. You're off and running. And it doesn't always feel that way, but it's, it's awfully... I, sorry. I, 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 whenever I get excited when I'm speaking, two things happen. One of my ears turns bright red, and my nose starts running. I have no idea why. If, if you can figure it out, uh, you know, if you have some medical training, you could tell me. That'd be great. Um, although it did make for a, a beautiful wedding ceremony, didn't it? Enjoy. I do. Uh, yeah, it was, it was beautiful, but... Uh, You'll have to forgive me for that. I didn't want to draw attention to it, but I think I might have. Um, what were we talking about? Jonah, Jonah. That's what we do. We're off and running. We're not connecting with God. And, and I did a lot of reading about this and, and watched, uh, listened to a lot of sermons and watched some videos. And, and there was two reasons that I came across that really, really resonated with me as to why we would do this. Because it's not logical. And nothing that Jonah did was logical either. And one of them was something that Andy Stanley put forth. And he says this. He says, We just don't want to be told what to do. And we're afraid that if we truly surrender to God, we're we're going to miss out on good things. For some reason, we think what this world offers is going to be taken away from us and replaced by godly things. And, And a lot of times, especially if you're younger, sometimes those godly things sound like boring things to us. 
we feel like that's not what we want to do. And so we know what God says about our finances, but look at that car I want to buy. We know what God says about sex and marriage, but look at that girl who's looking at me. We know what God says about forgiveness, but we think, yeah, but look what they did to me. And we know what God says about praying for our political, political leaders, and we're like, yeah, but look at what they're still doing to me. We just kind of change. We, we, we get this idea that what God wants isn't what we want. And so we start to change what we believe about God. Did God really say that? Does God really mean that? Does that really apply to me? And so you put God on hold. You just kind of, you don't want to do what he wants you to do, at least not right now. And so we say no. We run from God and we kind of live our lives separate from him because we're afraid of missing out on something good. And the truth is, you know, if I only bought cars that I could afford, my car would probably have pedals and a basket on the front. And so I don't want to do that. And uh, another, another, the second one that really resonated with me is, is something that Philip Yancey talks about. And he says, simply, sometimes as Christians, we confuse life with God. So when life doesn't go very well, when things are difficult, we kind of equate that to God not doing very well for us and making life difficult for us. And so we say to ourselves, why would I want to do God's will when this is what my life looks like now? Why would I want to surrender to God because of how, when I look at how difficult things are for, for me now, why would I want to turn toward him in difficult times when on some level I kind of feel like maybe he's the reason for the difficult times? Again, it's not logical, but it's where our minds often go. And so we think, you know, if this is how life is going to treat me, and therefore that's how God is treating me. And you don't want any part of it. We confuse life with God, and so we run from God. We abandon God. We try to walk away. And so we're going to talk about this idea of running from God and to guide us along the way, we're going to talk, as I mentioned, uh, about probably the Bible's most famous runner, and that would be Jonah. And it's interesting, because if the, if, the, if the Scripture didn't tell us that he was fleeing from God, I don't know if we would ever have, have phrased it that way. But that's what we're going to read about Jonah. When I say Jonah, you probably think of two things. You think of the big whale, or you think of veggie tales, right? So when I say to you, Jonah was a prophet, one, one, all right. Round of applause. That was good. Yeah, we, we often just go to the movie, right? You know that movie came out in 2002? It is shocking to me. My years are slipping away, but I couldn't believe that. But it's, it's that idea of, of, you know, he was a prophet. And nowadays we're like, well, what does that really mean? What does it mean? But prophets were kind of like the Navy SEALs of doing God's work. They went into difficult situations, and they delivered a message to people who didn't want to hear it, and they just hoped that things would work out well. And they often didn't, because people don't like to hear difficult messages from people. I think of it this way, you know, if, 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 you, uh, if you were to receive a difficult message today from somebody, I don't know, let's say your in-laws came over and suggested you're doing everything wrong. Our immediate reaction is not to say, well, thank you so much for your help. We often don't go there. I mean, it's easy to pick on your in-laws. Um, it's fun, too. I mean, you should try it. I, I am an in-law now. I, I have a son-in-law, so now I get to play that role. But it's, it's this idea of a message that you don't want to hear. Why would anybody sign up for that? But Jonah did. We're told that Jonah was a prophet. And that leads us to believe he did prophet-like things before this story began. It wasn't like it says that Jonah was asked to become a prophet. He was a prophet. He spent his time delivering God's message to difficult situations. And so as we jump into the, the scripture here today, let me just summarize for you the first three verses. We'll save some time. We're just going to summarize them very quickly. It tells, us, it tells us a few things. It says, number one, Jonah had a dad. 
Excellent. We, pro we assume that Jonah's dad was probably a prophet as well. It tended to run in the family. Uh, it says that Jonah was asked to go to Nineveh and tell them that they were in serious trouble. Nineveh is the capital city of Babylon. This was not a, we, we would say today Christian, but this was not a Jewish uh, settlement. This was the enemy. So he said, you need to go to Israel's enemies and deliver them a message and tell them they're not doing a good job. And so Jonah immediately gets off the couch and he heads to the nearest port to buy a ticket for a ship which is weird because he can't get to Nineveh by boat. And then he decides he's going to head off in the opposite direction. And then it actually says in verse 3, because he was fleeing from God. And now listen, I'm the first to admit that Jonah, Jonah's task, Jonah's mission had a very high degree of difficulty. He was going to people who they were at war with most of the time. He was going to go to people who did not respect the fact that he came from God because they didn't worship this God. Most prophets in the Bible went to their own people to tell them what God said, so at least they had the benefit of, of someone saying, well, at least I need, I'm supposed to listen to this guy. I'm supposed to listen and respect the role that this prophet has. That was not true. That was not true as he went to Nineveh. And so as Jonah says, he looks at that situation, he says, listen, I'm just not going to do this. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to question it. I'm not going to... Uh, you know, ask for an opportunity to do something different or better. I'm just not going to do this. And so it says that he basically decides, you know, he doesn't rebuke his faith. He doesn't suddenly become an agnostic or an atheist and say there is no God. He acknowledges God. He just says, I'm not going to do what God has asked me. And so he got into a boat and he headed to what we would now call Spain. And this is as far as you could go in, in the period of time back then. And I think there's a map we can show. Um, it's as far as you could go. So Jonah's Starts basically in A or close to it. He's supposed to go to B. He gets on a ship heading for C. And that's his plan. That's his plan. And it leads us, I think, to, to the kind of the first point that, I, point that I want to make this morning is that when people run from God, they often end up in the strangest of places. Because when you and I run from God, we disconnect ourselves from the sources of wisdom and truth in our lives. And when you disconnect yourself from the, the, from the source of wisdom and truth, you not surprisingly start to make unwise decisions. And a big part of that is all the people in your life, the people who are sitting in this room with you right now, for example, when you disconnect from God, you disconnect from God's people. And it's like you're just simply saying, I know you've had great advice for me in the past. I trust your judgment, but I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't want to follow up on that. And so we run. We run from this idea that we there's people who reflect wisdom and truth in our lives, people who act in our lives as, as great mentors, as people who can really help us in our Christian walk, but we move away from them as well. And it often takes us to places we're not familiar with. It takes us out of places like Kingsway and into places where we're maybe not so familiar. And so if you're a teenager, you unplug from your youth group. Not that you don't believe in God anymore. It's just, eh, I don't really like it anymore. It's not for me. Or if you're an adult, you, you unplug from your small group because they keep asking these very pointed questions and they keep sharing their lives and you don't want it anymore. You're not comfortable with it anymore. You want to keep God and therefore God's people a little bit further away and suddenly you just become too busy and soon you disconnect from church. And I say this because it's exactly the, the formula that I followed, that I got to the point where I didn't even want to go to church anymore because just being around God's people irritated me a lot. And so I withdrew, I pulled away, and I, I guess you would say I ran. And we know that God is everywhere. We know that we physically can't run away from God, but we can run away from God's people. 
We can pull back from God's people, the people who speak into our lives about wisdom and truth, and that often leaves us into making unwise decisions. That's exactly what Jonah did. He left his people. I'll tell you one thing you're not doing in Spain is going to temple. It's not there. He chose to go somewhere that was far, far away from everything that he knew, from the people he knew, from those who spoke wisdom into his life, from his rabbi, from everybody he knew. He decided to go in the opposite direction. And I, I really want to take a moment right now to say, though, that it would be a mistake for us, I think, to focus this book on Jonah. This is not about Jonah. The, the story of Jonah is a great story, but it's not great because of Jonah. Jonah makes a lot of mistakes. I don't want you to fashion your life after Jonah. What's it, what's, what I think is so relevant to us today is looking at God's response to someone who's running. And so we're going we're gonna to pick that up in just a minute here um, in the book of Jonah. But it's the next three words. So I summarized the first three verses for you. It's the next three words that we're going to find are so powerful. And they, and they show up over and over again in this story. They show up over and over again in the Old Testament. They show up over and over again in the New Testament are these three words. And, and just as we get there, let me just kind of remind you of what, what we've covered so far in the first three verses. And while we're doing that, why don't you grab your Bible? And uh, I hope you find Jonah. Jonah's tricky. If you start from the front, because Jonah's the Old Testament, right? You start from the front, you, you will never find it. It is a scientific fact that you will look for the rest of your days. You will never find Jonah. It's just, it's in a hard to find spot because it's in amongst a whole bunch of big books right before there's a whole bunch of small books. So I always say start in Matthew, find the, find the New Testament, go backwards. It's about seven or eight books back from Matthew. Um, if you're flipping and you're flipping and you're thinking like, I must have missed it, you didn't miss it. It's still two more to go. So just keep going. You'll find it there. And when you find Jonah, just stick your finger in that spot because that's where we're going to spend most of our time tonight. But again, the first three verses of Jonah, just to recap, Jonah had a dad. Jonah was a prophet. Jonah's running from God. And Jonah got on a boat. And that's where we're going to pick it up from. And the first three words, starting in, in uh, verse 4 here, is where we're going to pick this up. And it simply says this, Then the Lord, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. But here's the key, what I think, to the entire story of Jonah, that Jonah's on his way. Jonah's made his decision. Jonah's actually bought the ticket. He's on the boat. He's leaving. But the first three, three words here of this verse, then the Lord. What we find out is that God is not done with Jonah. And it says, then the Lord. You want to say it with me? Then the Lord then the Lord, all right? We're going to remember those. You should always notice that. Whenever you're reading any scripture, when you come across the then the Lord, now the Lord, but the Lord, soon the Lord, you should underline it because something great is about to happen because God's decided to move. And so Jonah runs and God acts. Let me tell you something about runners. When, when, when you're a runner, when you're running from God, eventually you're going to have some of these then the Lord moments in your life. It is not likely to be a death-defying shipwreck but you're going to have those moments where God tries to re-engage you. And here's what the, the text says over the next few verses. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? In other words, he's saying, isn't it obvious we're in some severe trouble here? Isn't it obvious the last thing you should be do is sleeping? Isn't it obvious that we're about to sink and we're all in trouble? Isn't it obvious that this trip is going to cost us our lives? Isn't it obvious to you that you might die? 
isn't it obvious to you that we are about to sink? And that leads us to our second point for today, and it's simply this. Runners are often the last person to know when they're in trouble. Runners are often the last person to know when they're in trouble. They're the last ones to make the connection. And by connection, I mean this. And you've probably seen this in other people's lives. It's so difficult for us to see in the mirror what's going on sometimes, but so easy for those who we know and care about us and those around us to spot this same stuff. I mean, maybe, maybe it's a son or a daughter, and as you watch your parents' marriage unravel and they can't understand why things are going so poorly, they can't understand what they need to do to get back on track, and you're standing back and you're watching this and you're saying, I know what it is. You've disconnected from God. God's no longer the head of this household. God's no longer the, the unifying factor in your marriage. You can see it. But in that moment, they can't see it. And that's because runners are often the last to know that they're in trouble. I know that for myself. When I, when I look back at my life, what life and uh, I've shared this several times before, but when, when our marriage was about done, when we were, we were uh, separating and we were finished with each other, my wife and I, you know, there was there was this idea that I couldn't get past. This is all her fault. I later find out everybody who knew either of us knew that was nonsense. But I wasn't listening. I wasn't listening. I thought that I was, the, I was the last one to know that I was in trouble. I was the last one to know that this was because of my relationship with the Lord. And it's true for Jonah as well. He goes down into the belly of the boat and he goes to sleep because he just doesn't make the connection. And so Jonah goes to sleep, and the captain comes down, and he basically says, hey, we're having a prayer meeting upstairs. Would you like to join us? And Jonah comes upstairs, and he wipes the sleep out of his eyes, and he goes up on deck, and they all have a prayer meeting. I don't know what that would look like. They're all praying to different gods, but they're all, uh, they're all praying. And then it says that they decided they had to figure out who was to blame. And so they started to cast lots, which is basically a game of chance where they're trying to figure out who's caused this, who is the one that whoever's God is doing this is causing this. And so they try to figure out who the culprit is because these sailors knew they were in trouble. So they cast lots and they went around and they basically said, to, they get to Jonah and said, okay, well, what's, the, what's this guy's deal? And we'll pick it up in verse nine. It says, Jonah, he answered, but Jonah answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. I love this verse. I think verse 10 is an amazing verse. This terrified them. I mean, it may seem like a, a strange favorite verse, but think about this. These, these people are not, believers in God. They have their own gods. They have their own religions. But they were terrified to hear that Jonah had done something against this God, against our God. They were terrified by that. And they asked, what have you done? So it says that, uh, sorry, continuing in verse 10, it says, they knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. So at this, this moment, the, the penny drops, right? And they're like, oh, he's running from God. And it's like, wait a minute. What, what did you do? What did you do that you were running from God? And so in verse 11, it says, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to, uh, sorry, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? See, now they figured out whose fault it is. It's Jonah. So what do we do to you? And Jonah says something I'm sure they weren't quite expecting. He says, well, just pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied. <laughs> and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that the great storm has come upon you. And it, but instead, I think these men had some integrity and said, they said, well, we can't do that. So instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not because the sea grew even wilder than before. They then cried out to the Lord. So now they're praying to Jonah's God. So they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Uh-oh, I think they made a decision. 
Please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew quiet and calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they made a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Again, that just amazes me, that they are so respectful of a God they don't even worship. But these gentlemen had made their decision. And I don't know about you, I always try to picture myself. I think think the chosen has done this to me. I always picture myself in any Bible story, I picture, picture kind of being there. And I, I struggle with this one because I get it. We're going to throw Jonah overboard, and uh, they're happy with their decision, but then suddenly the storm stops. Well, I kind of have to believe that Jonah's like 30 yards back of the stern just swimming, treading water, I don't know, maybe waving. Like, like I can't imagine what these guys must have thought because they're like, it worked. He's in the water. And I have to believe they must have said, do we pick him up again? Like, what are we going to do? Like, he's just, he's just there. The storm's gone. We know the storm was because of him, but what do we do now? They've just kind of got to, got to this moment, and, and I know that, you know, I, I don't think Jonah plugged his nose and cannonballed off the side and just sank to the depths. That's not what you do. When you are, when you are thrown into a, to water, you swim, or you do your best to swim as, uh, as you can. But we're never going to find out because we're, we're then, we then come across another then the Lord. In this case, it's now the Lord. Verse 17 says this, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and for three nights. So now it's, first it was a then the Lord, it's now a now the Lord. You want to say that with me? Now the Lord. God acts again. And I love the wording here, he provided a fish. I'm not sure what that means, but we know what happens next, right? He is swallowed up by this great beast, and, uh, and again, as we said, you know, he's the last to see it, last to make the connection. But in the very first uh, verse of, of chapter 2, and I don't know why this isn't part of chapter 1, it seems strange to me, but the very first verse of chapter 2 kind of completes the next section. And it simply says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Well, I bet he did. Because somehow, I don't think, as that giant fish swallowed him whole, Jonah was like, oh, thank goodness I've been rescued. I don't think that's the response I would have had anyway. In that moment, I bet he prayed to God because he's just been swallowed by a fish. He doesn't know the plan. He doesn't see the connection. And if we go back to that speech that he just gave, he says, I'm guilty. I'm the culprit. I'm the reason. So being swallowed up by a giant fish seems a little bit like the end of the story. I don't think Jonah would have argued that. I disobeyed God. God came after me with a fish. Now now I'm fish food. I don't think he would have argued that. But I think what Jonah doesn't realize yet, and he's going to realize very soon, though, is our third point for this morning. You can run from God, but you can't outrun God. And that sounds rather ominous, doesn't it? It sounds like the tagline in a horror movie. You can run, but you can't hide. But it's not. In fact, I, I would argue it may be the most comforting and uplifting concept in the entire Bible, that God will not give up on you. You can run from God, but you can't outrun God. And you know what? I don't know this for sure, um, but I don't think God literally chases us. Why would he? He's God. But God's everywhere. And when you're running, you just imagine if someone's chasing you and everywhere you turn, they're there. It, all, it feels like you're being pursued. And I think God pursues us. He may not physically chase after us, but he pursues us. And so let me be clear about one other thing, though. You are not Jonah. 
Now, if you're watching online and your name's Jonah, I apologize if that's confusing, <laughs> but what I'm saying is you're not Jonah. This is not an instruction booklet on what is going to happen if you run from God. It is not necessary that you avoid all boats if you are pushing God away at the, at the current moment. That's not what we're talking about, because I don't think this story is about Jonah at all. Uh, it may lead you to wonder, well, why did they call it the book of Jonah? Well, I think if we named all 66 books of the Bible the book of God, it would get very confusing. So Jonah's the, the, who we're talking about here, but this is not a story about Jonah. Jonah is not your role model. And I, I'm sorry to say that. I think we have a way with Old Testament characters of always kind of uh, turning them into the heroes of the story. Uh, Jonah does not make the cut. Uh, ask me how I feel about uh, <laughs> some of the uh, people in Judges, if they make the cut. We always want to make them the hero of the story. Jonah's not the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story because, once again, God acts. And so, again, he prepared a fish for Jonah, and, he's gonna, and he will prepare something for you as well. And it may not be as fantastic, but it's going to be something where he is going to bring you back, draw you back, and, 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 and re-engage with you as long as, as long as you're able, as long as you're willing. And, so he, and, he, and here's why. Because throughout the Bible, we are reminded of, of a certain relationship that exists, and it's this, that God is seen as our Heavenly Father, and we are seen as his children. And it's really, it's really as close as God can get to explain something that we can understand, the relationship between him and us, is to father to child. And as a father disciplines his children that he loves... We're told in Scripture that God also disciplines us. And so in Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, it says this. It says, My child, don't reject the Lord's discipline and don't be upset when he corrects you. For the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. And so what God is saying to Jonah is, listen, your plan is to run away to Spain, but that's not good for you. That's not, that's not going to bring you the life that you want. You're not going to find acceptance and love and, and people in, in, uh, in Spain who are going to just accept you and, and build you up and bring you back to me. He says, by choosing to run away, what you're choosing to do is not good for you. He says, I know what's good for you. I'm your father. I know what's best for you, and I'm going to bring you back. And Jonah just doesn't realize this till later in the story, but God did bring him back. He chased him down to the point. But here's the key idea he didn't chase Jonah down to pay him back. He chased him down to win him back. He wanted Jonah back where he belonged with his father. And that's the cause of these then lords, now lords. Sometimes it's soon the Lord moments. All of these things have nothing to do with punishment. They have everything to do with the same reason that my mom and my dad went looking for me when I ran away as a kid. It wasn't about punishment. That's not why they came looking for me. I can't wait to find that kid. They came looking for me because they loved me. They came looking for me because they loved me. I will admit there was some formalized discipline to follow, but they came looking for me because they loved me and they wanted me back home where I belonged because they knew that was what was best for me. Living in a tree held little promise for them. And when my mom found me, I remember, she, she said, I've been looking everywhere for you, and she was crying, and I was crying, and, 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 and I remember thinking to myself, well, clearly not everywhere. You would have found me before now, but I didn't say it. I didn't say it. That's how, that's how long ago this started. I didn't say it. But she was looking for me because she wanted me to come back. And here's the thing. If you're running for God, 
God wants you back. If you're running from God, you need to know that your heavenly Father is constantly looking for you. He is, even when you're not looking, at, looking for him, he's still looking for you. And here's the good news, he will not stop. I guess you could say resistance is futile. Not because he wants to pay you back or get you back for what you've done, but because he wants to win you back and bring you back into a relationship with him. And the, and the reason I can say this with such absolute confidence, even though I don't know you, and I don't know your story, and I don't know your level of resistance, and I don't know your level of rebellion, the reason I can say that with such confidence is because 750 years after that fish swallowed up Jonah, God sent his son to us to pay completely for our sins so that we don't have to be punished for them. And let me say this very, very clearly, because I think it's something that I forget all the time. Punishment has been dealt with. 2,000 years ago, punishment has been dealt with. It is gone. There is no level of punishment God is reserving for you. God has dealt with punishment. That was a price that was paid by Jesus 2,000 years ago. God has no interest in punishing you for your mistakes. What he does have interest in is winning you back, is bringing you back and restoring a relationship with him. It's and we're going to read Jonah and praise this amazing prayer in the next chapter. And it's a prayer of repentance, and it's a prayer of surrender. But that's not where Jonah is in chapter 1. Because you can run from God, but you can't outrun God. And you may not know this now, but that probably is the best news that you'll ever hear. You can run from God, but you can't outrun God. And so God is sending and has sent and will send some now the Lord, then the Lord, but the Lord, soon the Lord moments to recapture your affection to recapture your heart, and sometimes just to recapture your attention. And that rings so true for me. You know, for decades of my life, and I know I've shared this before, but for decades of my life, I just tried to be a better Christian by trying to be more obedient. Because God won't be mad at me if I can do more things right. If I could just be more Christ-like. If I could just figure out a way to make this work. But it wasn't working. I was actually going in the wrong direction. And over the years, I was becoming more distant from God, more unkind, more hard-hearted. And it always seemed to me that everybody else had figured something out. Everybody else always seemed to be better at being a Christian than I was. They were more serious. They were more devout. They were more devoted. They loved church instead of were being dragged to church. And they were just more successful at what I would call being a follower of Jesus. And I was listening online to my favorite pastor this week. His name's um, Mark Vanderweer. You want to you wanna give him a listen? I wasn't here last week, so I listened in, in my car. And I remember I, sh- I, I actually verbally shouted out yes when he said this. I, I want to quote him, which is always awkward. If somebody quotes you, you feel like you're in court. But um, <laughs> I want to quote him for a second. Last week, Mark said this. Do you know what happens when you begin to know him? You can't help but to do what he says. And I want to add a word to that. I just want to add one word to that for, for our purposes today. Do you know what happens when you begin to know him? You can't help but to want to do what he says. And that's the difference in my life. To go from someone who was afraid of what God might do to me to someone who's desperate for God to just continue to love me. And I think what really happened to me and what really happened to Jonah, what happens to many of us, is we fall into this trap of believing that the goal of obedience is to be obedient. And I would say to you this morning, the goal of obedience is not obedience. The goal is not to make you better obedient. You're God's child, not his dog. He doesn't want you just to be always instantly doing what he says. He wants you to get to the point where you seek out his will. You seek out who he is because you want to be in relationship with him. It's not a checklist. Can I do enough things right today to balance the scales? 
It's not simply saying to yourself, well, God, I know God wants this sort of stuff, so I better do this sort of stuff. You'll never win that battle. You will never win that battle. The goal of obedience is to bring me and to bring you into a right relationship with God and allow me and you to be transformed into the likeness of his son. And there's hundreds of examples in the Bible where we hear it's about your heart, it's not about the rules. And it's confusing because, I mean, read the Bible. There's some rules in there. There's a lot of stuff in there, but it's always about the heart. It's always about your heart. And I think one of the best ways to describe this is something that happened on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Jesus shared a Passover meal with his disciples, and he asked them to do something. And you probably all know this story. And if you're an usher here this morning, if you would like to, to begin the process of handing out the elements... That would be great. But it's, it's what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. But here, Jesus asked us, he didn't command us, he asked us to do something in remembrance of him. And we do this. It's not as an act of obedience because it's not like if we don't do this this morning, God's going to be angry with us. It's not like if we don't do this, he's, go, he's going to turn his back on us. But rather, he says, Jesus simply said this, I'm going to create a little tradition. I'm going to create a little remembrance so that you can remember something that's very important because it benefits you. The more time you dwell on the sacrifice that Christ made for you, the more you will be in line with the will of the Lord. And when you can do that, suddenly things you're afraid of become things you embrace. I don't want to become a Christian. What if I have to stop doing these things that I like doing? And suddenly you will be embracing those things that God has laid out for you. The goal is not to say, you know, I did it. I can check it off. I did this this morning. Thank you so much. That's not the purpose, is that you can check this off and say, I did it. What it is, is it's a remembrance, it's a reminder, it's an opportunity to align yourself with Jesus this morning as we do this. It's a chance to basically just come together and say, I don't want to forget that sacrifice that was made. I don't want to just have that something that's in the back of my mind that I think of when I have time. I want this to be what I'm all about. And so that's why when we share the Lord's Supper together, we're asked to be thoughtful. We're asked to, be, to reflect, to acknowledge, to be thankful, to focus our minds on what it was that Jesus did, not because this is an act of obedience that must be followed, but it is an opportunity. And the benefit is ours. The benefit is completely ours. Jesus doesn't need us to do this, but he does need us to, rem- to remind ourselves to focus on what he did because that allows us to live a life purely within the will of his Father. And so if you remember, on the, on the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, he shared this Passover dinner with his closest friends, those same people that he would later task as being those who would go out and spread the gospel and make disciples throughout the world. It was those people sitting around that table. And as he, as he laid this out, um, you know, he laid out this remembrance. I think there's a few things we should think on. And, and the first is something that Mark always talks about. It's just this great reminder that the church is not the building. This building is not church. The church are the, is the people. In, in particular, it's the gathering. When you gather together with believers, you are being the church. And the church is actually, we know this, is best when it's a group of people who meet in a circle and they talk and they share and they build a life together rather than rows all facing the front. We know that's the, the design. But the Lord's Supper was never meant to be a church, the building thing. It's a church, the people thing. You don't need to be trained or ordained to do it, and you definitely don't have to be here to make this happen. Because it was never meant to be tiny little cups of juice and tiny little squares of cracker. It was meant to be part of a meal. 
And if you look at the early church, that's what they did. Every time they shared a meal together, they would pause during that meal, no matter who was around the table with them. Large group meeting together, just a couple couples, you and your, your, your favorite you know, believer friends coming over, bringing their kids, whatever it might have been, this is something that they would do in their homes when they shared a meal. And I, I, we've, done this, we've done this once in our family, and I don't know why we don't do it more, but it's, um, it's a powerful thing to share communion at your dinner table, to just pause the meal and just say, you know, as we're eating this bread and as we're drinking this whatever it is, milk, doesn't really matter. As we do this, we can stop and just take a moment. And what I love, too, is in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul basically writes us a bit of a script. So if you're like, I wouldn't know what to say, he tells you what to say. He tells you a way that you can do it. Does it have to be exactly that? No. But take an opportunity. Try this at home. You don't often hear that at church. Take it home and do it. Treat it as homework if you'd like. Last time you have a, a Christian couple over for dinner or, or, a, or a family come over, I wouldn't suggest you do it with non-Christians. They might think you're very strange. But do, when you have people come over and you're having a meal together, try it. It's a, simple, it's a simple remembrance, and that's what it was meant to be. And it's something that has been happening for 2,000 straight years. We, uh, historians estimate there was about 50 days between the Last Supper where Jesus explained this and the first meetings of the, of, of the church, about 50 days. And so that's the longest gap there may have ever been of people sharing communion together, 50 days. This started 2,000 years ago, and it continues on, and, and it's an opportunity for us to just understand and remember. And we, as a church, have been doing this in remembrance of him ever since, and that's what we can do as people in the church, to take some time to remember who he is and what he did. Not because it's a checkbox to be checked, not because you're in trouble if you don't, because Jesus laid this out as an opportunity for us to stay focused on what's important because he wants what's best for us. And that's always been the plan. So we do that. We do this remembrance not, because, not in remembrance of that supper, not in remembrance because it's something the early church did, but we do it for the very reason that Jesus laid out for us, that it's, it's done so that we can focus on him, and that is to our benefit. And I'll tell you, it's, it's hard to run from God at the same time as you share the Lord's Supper because the focus is so intense on who he is and what he did for us. And so I'm going to read tonight just from, sorry, this morning, uh, from 1 Corinthians 11. Um, this is Paul's kind of um, summary of what the Lord's table is meant to be all about. In fact, it was a, actually a problem in the early church. Because this was part of a meal, they would set out a meal for people to share, and there were some people who came early to get all the food. And so imagine that, you, you know, there's basically it's a buffet, and people were coming and, and basically eating all the food before everybody else got there. And so Paul had to say, guys, I think we've lost focus on what we're doing here. So he kind of wrote out this, this instruction booklet, if you will. Um, but mostly it's quote. It's quoting Jesus. It's quoting Jesus from that moment at the Last Supper. And so I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11, the second half of verse 23 and, the, and verse 24, when it simply says this. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. Lord, uh, John writes that there's, there's no, greater, no greater love for someone to lay down their lives for a friend, Lord. And we are doubly blessed that you would call us friend and you did lay down your life for us so that we could live eternally. How can we not be thankful for that, Lord? 
How can we not take a moment, every moment, to acknowledge what you've done for us? That in the breaking of your body, Lord, you made it so that we could live forever. And just as, just as important, Lord, that we can live forever with you. And so we're thankful for that. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for making us whole. Just continuing on in 1 Corinthians, it says, In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Lord, we, we acknowledge, I acknowledge, Lord, that that blood shed that day on the cross, it should have been mine. That punishment you received, you, it was not yours, it was mine. And I acknowledge that, Lord, and I thank you that you would come and make such a sacrifice, not just for everyone, but for each and every one of us. That I know, Lord, that if I was the only sinner, you would have made that sacrifice just for me. So thankful for that, Lord. So thankful that your grace led you to the point where you would shed your blood in place of mine. And Lord, I just pray, I just pray that I would never grow tired of hearing it, Never grow weary of saying it, Lord, that I would focus on the sacrifice that you made in a daily way in my life, Lord, that I can live a life in the will of your Father because I understand the sacrifice of his Son. Let's praise Jesus. And finally, in verse 26, it simply says this, For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. And can I just remind you this morning that he is coming again. And I think that's worth remembering. I think that's worth celebrating. So as we head out today, I'm, I'm just so excited to be, uh, to be able to share this message with you. I do want to pray just for, for just particularly for the runners in the room. Um, you may not know you're a runner. I certainly wouldn't have labeled myself a runner for those 20 plus years. But it's something that you need to search your heart and realize if that's the position you're in where you're happy with God being just over there. It's really a surrender issue. But let's just pray. Lord, I just... I just the more I think about where I was 10, 15 years ago, however long ago it was, Lord, the more I, the more I just understand how blind I was, how, how much I did not understand what was going on around me, how I felt abandoned by you, even knowing I was the one who was running. Lord, I am so thankful you're a God who pursues. I'm so thankful that you're a God that, that forgives. I'm so thankful for, that you're a God that aims to win back, not to pay back. If not, I have no standing with you, Lord, but your, your, your wonderful son has created that for us, a way to be reunited with you through his sacrifice. And Lord, I just pray for, for those in the room, Lord, who maybe have put a bit of distance between them. Maybe they don't consider themselves runners. Maybe they consider themselves drifters or wanderers, Lord. But it's the same idea, that we're kind of putting you at arm's length, keeping you a bit, a bit away from us where it feels a little bit safer so we can live our own lives, Lord. I just pray that you would just... Send, send in one of those then-now moments where we might truly understand, truly understand that you pursue us because you love us and you know what's best for us. And what's best for us is still the life that you've laid out for us that is perfectly found in the center of your will. Just praise in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, I, um, I purposely made this a three-parter, but the desperate hope that you'll sign the petition and I'll be back again at some point. <laughs> If not, uh, you'll have to read the rest of the book on your own. Um, it's uh, always wonderful to see you guys. I, 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 feel, I do feel like a guest speaker Sunday mornings because, I, again, I'm not here very often, but I, I truly appreciate you guys. I love, seeing, I love seeing the overflow seating. I'm sorry if that's 
<laughs> not kind to say to the people in the overflow seating, but I, I love that you don't have space for all the people who are coming out to Kingsway on a, on a, on a Sunday morning. Uh, as Mark always says, probably not appropriate, but I'll put in a Saturday night plug. If you like elbow room, if you like putting your feet up, if you like having two chairs, uh, Saturday night will accommodate you. Come on out. Um, I'll give you a row. First time out, I'll give you an entire row. And uh, just happy to have you, happy to be here, and just uh, wishing you a great week. If you have kids, good for you. Uh, go get them, please. Go get them. Yeah, we don't, uh, we're, we're finishing up with them. So uh, we will do the discussion questions. I don't think I need to read them, but uh, if you're interested, you can, get, uh, you can take a look at those. They'll be on the YouTube, uh, the last part of the YouTube broadcast as well. Just what we know, and, and what we know, this is actually research about brain science, not even about Christianity, but when you, when you, when you um, hear something, you take in a very small amount of it. But when you sit and you talk about it with someone, and you're in your kind of caused, you know, you have caused to kind of formulate a response and to, to share, you take, you take so much more in. So if you have an opportunity just to talk with someone about what you've heard today, if you want to use the questions, not use the questions, it's not really mandatory you use them, but it's just a prompt that you might be able to have a conversation with somebody about something you heard, because so much more of that will just kind of become part of who you are and what you, and what, and what you are um, more than just hearing it. So have a great week, and uh, I'll see you again maybe soon, Mark. He said, he said very soon, I could tell. <laughs>